Hello, and welcome to Regrets I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told by an Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Hello, and welcome to this first episode of Regrets I've Had a Few in 2024. My guest this month is an actor and writer who has recently branched out into directing and dramaturgy. As a writer, they have a truly unique voice and the ability to combine the political and the personal, the touching and the comic, an innate sense of theatre that quite literally brings audiences to their feet. Welcome, Charlie Josephine. Oh, what a lovely intro. Thanks very much. That's nice. I wish I got that every time I walked into a room. (laughs) Well, you can have that. That's yours, Charlie. Um, I should say thank you so much for joining us. And I also need to come clean to the listeners if they don't know, but I am very biased uh, because I am fortunate enough to be uh, working with Charlie and performing in their brilliant play, Cowboys, uh, which we all did in the RSC last year and is shortly about to open at the Royal Court Theatre in London. And I'm going to say something which I've said to you, Charlie, but I feel I need to say it to the public. Um, it has been, the experience of working with you on this play has been one of the best experiences I've had as an actor ever. And I've been doing it a terribly long time, Charlie. So if that means... I'm so happy to I hear think that. The, the, well... It needs to be said because the team that you and mm. Sean Holmes, the co-director, brought together is truly, truly unique. And the playful, collaborative, caring, and at times wild atmosphere you created <laughs> was a joy to be part of. So I, 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 we will come to Cowboys, I'm sure, at some point in this. Um, but I wanted to start with a quote of yours, Charlie, if that's all right, which I was really taken by. I think I read it maybe back when we were rehearsing. And uh, this is you saying, my brain is fizzy and my body likes to move. I'm proper passionate about making art that's honest, visceral, sweaty, particularly stories that center working class women and queer people. It's brilliantly articulated. It's. It feels totally authentic. Now I know you work with you. But how did it come about that you were arrived at that kind of statement? I suppose, or that you articulated. Yeah. That? Um, I mean, that took a long time. So in the in the twenty twenty pandemic, that marked ten years of me being graduated from drama school. Um, and so. And I made myself a website in that time, like you do, bored at home in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> I thought, I know, I'll make a website. And I sort of Googled how to do it and was quite chuffed with myself because I'm really terrible with technology. And um, and I looked at other people's websites and they, you know, sometimes they've clearly written about themselves, but in this sort of, um, what you call it, that third person. So they'll be like, oh, Dave makes work or Sarah does this or, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to write it like it's me because it obviously is and it would be a bit silly to pretend otherwise and and then I thought well what do I do and like what am I trying to do and I think a lot of people weren't they at that time having quite big questions about their life and sort of putting things into perspective a bit and like taking a moment to reflect and and yeah that's what I wrote down I sort of thought yeah I think that's sort of what I'm doing and if it needs editing in the future, I'll change it again. But I think that basically sums it up. Um, uh, yeah, in the neatest way that I, that I can. 
Well, I, it's interesting what you said there because what I love about it is it does sound obviously exactly like you talking. Yeah. And there's lots of moments when you read things that it, it doesn't sound like that, like you say about it. And it makes me think a little bit about my, obviously, my co-founder and dear friend and colleague, John Wright, and his book, which uh, for me is a seminal book, Why Is That So Funny? And, and the way he writes in that book, I remember saying to him, that sounds like you talking. And I don't like theatre books very much. I'm not very interested in them in general. But what I love about his book is it's like being in the room with him. He kind of, and that similarly, I think that I feel that not just about your statement, but about your writing as well. We'll, we'll touch more on that later. But I'm going to take you back, Charlie, as I okay. always do with my guests, is to ask you to maybe try and remember your first kind of theatre experience, what you saw, or was it at school or with the family, or and what that. What impact, if any, uh, that that showbiz experience had on yeah, you? Yeah, I can remember it viscerally. Uh, so, but to start, really, um, I was sort of doing drama before I'd actually seen any. I was like this weird little queer non-binary trans kid before we had any of that language um in the early 90s my mum bless her did her best but like you know tried to support me and um I've got ADHD and I'm dyslexic and uh and then on top of that I had a speech impediment as a kid so that was kind of like having fireworks inside your head like loads of energy loads of ideas loads of creative ways of responding to the world but like I couldn't articulate a sentence literally because my mouth didn't work, but also because the way my brain works, they call it phonological processing. It's like I don't really go in a sort of, it's very challenging for me to go in a linear pattern when I am forming a thought. Um, yeah. I've got better at it over the years, but uh, so yeah, I was just this mad little kid with loads of energy and then and then couldn't talk properly. So then I just stopped talking. And my mum was a nurse. She just retired recently after 42 years in the NHS. She's an incredible woman. Wow. Yeah, amazing. That's a hero. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. she had a mate that was doing, like, training to be a voice therapist. So we managed to get, I think for free, I think I was, like, her case study, um, some voice therapy, what I hated. But out of the back of that, this woman said, oh, you should get Charlie to go to a local drama club because it might boost my confidence. And... My sister was doing ballet at Jane Marie Dance and Drama Club, which was this very, like, very serious woman, Jane Marie, who had, lo I remember her having loads of hairspray and lipstick all the time, and she terrified me. And and my sister would do these ballet classes in this church hall, and it was, like, plinky-plonky music, and, like, like, I remember the pink shoes. And, like, I sort of secretly wanted to join in because I quite like some of the shapes that they were making with their body. But I would never be seen caught doing something that girly. So so eventually I got talked into doing the drama club bit of it. And I was the youngest there by far like when I was at primary school. But I, re I was really good at it and I really loved it. And I was obsessed with that film Oliver with... Um, Jack yeah. Wilden, I must have watched that film a thousand times. And like, I really wanted to be the Artful Dodger, of course. And and just, it's, it's the best yeah, part. it's the best part. Um, so yeah, so I was sort of doing drama club from a very young age. And then my mum would take me to the old town hall in Hemel Hempstead, which is still there. It's a tiny little 60 seater 
um, studio theater and you get quite a lot of yeah we we yeah, we, I was, we performed i was going to say i wouldn't be surprised if you toured there because they get quite a lot of oh, we did our early shows there yeah, yeah. brilliant yeah. theater companies come and test stuff there before they then go into london often and and so what you'd get is a show i mean like again not age appropriate i i'd have seen the caucasian chalk circle i remember that really vividly mother courage that like, i was like a seven-year-old watching all this like quite what? adult content <laughs> and then afterwards you'd um they do like a workshop. Um, so that's like, you know, three hours of babysitting for my mum for like six quid, do you know what I mean? So so she was quite happy. Yeah. And then we'd go Watford Palace Theatre. My dad worked in this factory and they had a scheme with Elton John, something to do with Watford Football Club. Did he run it at one point or? Yeah, yeah, he was president or yeah. chairman. So of it, it was like kids for a quid, you could go and watch the football and then you could go to the panto at Watford Palace Theatre and I remember going with all these big burly men from the factory all these dads and we'd go and watch the panto and I just loved it like I knew that there was jokes that were too old for me to understand and I really enjoyed watching the dads laughing at stuff that I didn't I knew was a bit naughty but I didn't know why yeah and there's a sort of queerness isn't there in the dame and like yeah and and you got sweets chucked at you and you could shout out, I love I love a panto. I think I've been quite snobby in the past about panto and musicals, but actually I think they're fucking great. Like a real kind of working class community all together, huge emotional catharsis, like really fun night out. Um so yeah, then I, I totally I, I totally agree, Charlie, and, and I'm laughing a little bit at this vision of your seven-year-old self both embracing the works of Bertolt Brecht in the theater, <laughs> uh, and also the pantomime with your your dad and his mates from the back yeah. it sounds like a brilliant introduction to show business. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you about pantomime we did one year as ago Lyric Hammersmith where I played with a tanky and Hayley was Aladdin and and I think I love pantomime I also think it's very experimental mm. as a form it's very yeah. wild it's really you know, if it didn't exist and someone invented it today, it would it would be like, wow, what's yeah. this thing? It's kind of which is why the Americans don't quite get it. Even like they go, what what's this? What's yeah. going on? Yeah, it's it is very, it feels very British. A kind of like it's the one night out where everyone can sort of let rip a bit, and yeah. and it is a full family affair. Um, and there's not a lot of absolutely everybody that do that. I think. No, I totally agree with you, and and. So you, you obviously were getting your theatre uh, uh, time at the the old Tad Hall. Were you doing any performing at school? Was it was that happening? Or? Yeah, you know, like Christmas shows. Um, yeah. <laughs> I got the main part in a Christmas show and I remember coming home, my parents were arguing. This is just before they broke up. And I, um, I thought, oh, I won't tell them that I'm the main part, I'll I'll just let them come and watch it and it'll be a surprise. And I think I sort of thought that that would like help them get back together. <laughs> so much pressure on a young kid. Obviously that didn't happen, but, but I took it so seriously. I think, okay, I'll be really honest and this is a little bit earnest of me, Paul, so please forgive me, but- That's all right. I no. really, there's part of me still that really believes in the power of theatre. I'm laughing because I feel like a wanker, but like, but like, <laughs> I really do. Like, there's something sometimes that happens in a theater that is like magic, and 
and they are so precious those moments and like genuinely life-changing because they're inspiring or they open us up to empathy or or something or they connect us and remind us that we're all connected or they just make us feel alive and and they're rare but when they happen they're absolutely golden and and I, I think from even from you know doing the Christmas show at school I wanted yeah. to try and achieve that for the audience I wanted them to have that moment of magic and and so I just really took it really seriously from like yeah. such a young age I was like we've got a job to do that's like sacred do you know what I mean <laughs> so I knew everybody's lines and I it's like I just uh, yeah, really took it seriously. I think I've still got that in me now where I'm like, the bar is really high. Like, we're striving for yeah. something. It's not casual. Making theatre for me is not no. casual. I couldn't... What you've just said as well, absolutely... It's not earnest at all, <laughs> but what's brilliant about what you've just articulated is exactly how I feel, mm. so totally. Um, and sometimes you can question that as one gets older and I'm slightly yeah. older. And sometimes you can find yourself committing to something that is utterly ridiculous and utterly ludicrous with all mm -hmm. your heart in that moment. And it really, really matters. And of course, it's good to have a perspective on that. My family give me that perspective very clearly, who still think that I just go out with my mates and mess around yeah. for a job. And in some ways I do. And I think that's important as yeah, well, yeah. To, to mess around with people. But um, I, 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 that sense of commitment. Do you remember what the play was? What, what were I you was, performing I was Father in? Christmas in a sort of contemporary version of the nativity i think i remember uh -huh. wearing some boots really? that were far too big and i was sort of clumping around <laughs> so so and it's interesting in some ways it, your statement as well about you know you're, you talked about what theater you want to make and and i get a feeling probably similar backgrounds my dad worked in a factory my mom was a dinner lady and and we i was going to the pantomime so there wasn't context for me and by the sound of it for yourself in in you know in the family of people doing theater or no. going to the theater a lot so i think sometimes when you discover it the way that maybe you and i do and it really ignites a flame then it becomes a really burning flame i think sometimes because you haven't been exposed to yeah. it i suppose or you've got no you've, you've got no kind of sense and context i suppose so so moving a bit further forward when did you kind of think i want to try and do this properly i want to try and make this what I yeah. do um, I mean I was very naughty at school and so I did a B-tech in acting instead of doing A-levels because <laughs> you just pissed about for two years getting stoned <laughs> and um, and then one teacher there Katie Posner who now runs Payne's Plough I don't know if she remembers that she so she listens to this hi Katie oh. but I don't know if she remembers but she was one of my tutors at college and um had to put up with me you know drinking too much and all of that sort and then um, she said you should go to drama school and I didn't even really know what that was I sort of thought of like Billy Elliot do you know like trying to get into dance yeah. that was my only reference really um and then my granddad died and left me like two thousand pounds in his will and it had to go towards some educational so I was allowed to spend it on auditions for drama school and I'd never auditioned for anything before and I don't know if it's the same now but they're quite expensive you know you've got to travel there yes you've got to pay to audition uh yeah it's a ridiculous system really um so I ended up auditioning for loads of drama schools and I got into I think two 
Um, and one of them is East 15 on the contemporary theatre course run by Uri Rudner. And I was only 17 when I auditioned and he said, you're too young. Come, you've definitely got a place. But for next year, he said, go and get your heart broken. <laughs> get, get some life experience. And he's so provocative, isn't he, as a clown, really? Yeah, yeah. he is. So, um, so, yeah, then I, I did that course, which, as you know, because you've, you've worked with some CTs, um, it's a really messy sort of theatre making course rather than like an actor training um, so we did a lot of devising, a lot of clowning, a lot of movement, a lot of directing each other, a lot of music. Like we made a klezmer band at one point. I can't really remember why, but that was great. Um, you know, and, and worked with some incredible practitioners like yourself. I remember you came and did a, a sort of workshop day for us and I was really blown, sorry to blow smoke up your ass, but I was really blown away by it. And, you know, like Uri was really fantastic at bringing in theatre practitioners who are actually working, who are not kind of, stale like teachers who used to want to be a actor or a mm-hmm. maker or something like you know Kirsty Housley and China Play oh, wow. and like people like that come in and um that was really inspiring for me and I think really at some point in those three years I started to be like oh I really want to do this and I wrote my first play there April DeAngelis mentored us um wow. yeah, and we took it to the Edinburgh Fringe when we graduated in 2011, I sort of was directing my mate's play and I was in mine and that it was a sort of very incestuous affair really of everyone doing a bit of everyone else's job. Um, And about five people came to see it, but one of them was the NSDF and I got a commendation for writing from the NSDF. And that was kind of confidence boost for me to be like, oh, maybe I'm all right at this writing thing. Cause I really just started writing to give myself a part to play. Um, And I kept, and well, what was what was this play? It was called Perfection, and the title was spelt wrong. It had two Fs, <laughs> which is not a great title. Um, and it was about body image, um, and I, you know, the culture at the time, particularly at that school, I hope it's changed, was a sort of trauma porn. It was really like dig deep and find the most dramatic thing that's happened to you in your life and write about it and make smart and and obviously we all went mad and and I sort of was really ill at the time with an eating disorder which luckily at the moment I'm like in a good place with and then but I wrote about it when I was still really active and ill and and then try to perform it every day for a month in Edinburgh and of course you go mad and now whenever I talk to young people I'm like please don't do that it's not necessary like it's not it's not necessary to make good art by sharing really personal things that you're not ready to share or by like finding um you know traumatic life events or it's it it doesn't make the work sexy and cool it just makes you vulnerable to like more mental health issues i i I totally agree with you i also subscribe well i don't subscribe necessarily to the theory that all great art comes from great struggle i I have a real problem with that i think you can make really great things from having a really great time and i i think cowboys is a very good example of that i loved every single minute coming into work and sometimes you know you're struggling you're trying to find things out but on the whole the atmosphere was joyous playful everyone was kind and considerate and we made something really good i don't sometimes people think oh it's got to be a really struggle it's got to you've got to really suffer 
to make something good. And I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that's necessary at all. And, and particularly, thank you for saying that. I'm really pleased to hear it because it was something me and Sean worked really hard on in, in the preparation for rehearsals. We were like, we want to have fun. We want to like have a really joyous time and work with kind people. Um, we know we we joke that we chose kind people over talent, but that's obviously not true. It's a bit... <laughs> I don't mind that. No, it's a very talented bunch. But... but I think it's interesting that you say about you and Sean about it before rehearsals, because I think it, it it's really important that, that if you're going to think about that, that you pay attention to it. It's not something that just happens by chance. The people that in some ways are holding that room have to pay attention to the atmosphere and spirit that they want to generate or engender there. It doesn't happen by, we all turn up and by chance it all, it takes some consideration and some, how are you going to actually make that happen? But no, that really struck a chord with me. But I, so you've written your own thing and then obviously a show which you said yourself sort of changed your life was, was Bitch Boxer. Um, And how soon after your first, how soon after perfection was Bitch Boxer sort of emerging? So, I mean, I graduated in 2011. We took, you know, in the summer, we took perfection to Edinburgh that summer. About five people saw it. We came back skin and unemployed. I didn't have an agent, you know. um, I sort of was working in a coffee shop. I'd managed to break my ankle up there. So I was walking around in a moon boot. (laughs) It was a disaster. Great start to a career. Um, and then, yeah, I thought, you know, I thought I'm going to have to, my mum was bored of me moaning and said, you know, just write yourself something to do. And um, it's that tough love thing. And uh, and so I, I started to write really monologues because I thought, oh, if I ever get a chance to audition for something, at least I've got a good monologue I can I can use. And, yeah. and then slowly it started to grow into this one person show and then I just applied for loads of funding and yeah by the following summer we were up in Edinburgh um as part of the old Vic New Voices scheme I wouldn't have been able to afford to go um without it and I sort of just very cheekily was like you have to put this play on because it's about this summer (laughs) it's about women boxing at the olympics and that was happening at the same time that we were performing i think nicola adams got a gold medal at exactly the same time that i was performing one day it was a weird synchronicity yeah then we sold out for the rest of the run all thanks to nicola adams really And had you had you done any boxing prior to writing the play? No, I started for research um, just to see what it was like. I mean, I'd you know I'd had fights in a playground and in the pub and stuff, but I hadn't ever trained and um, and yeah, I just loved it. There was something in my body that felt really familiar. Like I was like, oh, I don't know if this is in my family, but I was like, I can really do this and. It's very addictive and um, yeah, it completely changed my life. And I started competing and ended up competing internationally and won a national title. And, what? Yeah. Wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah, it's mad, right. really mad. And so did you, do you have, uh, I, uh, one of the, sh- the title obviously the, of the podcast, do you have any regrets that you did suddenly pursue a boxing? There, were, there was, a, a, there was a moment where if I'd fully committed to it, I could have at least, I mean, I had a trial for the English boxing team and they said the England boxing what? team. Oh, Charlie, that's know, amazing. Mad, right? All for research, for a play. And they said, if you, if you really commit to this for a year and then come back next year, then we'll monitor you again and see if you're then ready to, to compete for England. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I think I'd got like an acting job or something. And I was like, Oh yeah, I was doing, um, 
Romeo and Juliet at the RSC. And I was like, you can't, you oh, yeah. can't do a big gig like Romeo and Juliet and and compete like you you just can't do it because Why? i mean you end up with awful black eyes and all sorts so um i just thought no come on like i actually want to make theater like i'm not really a boxer i just like it <laughs> well you're clearly you're clearly better than that by the sound of it. that's a brilliant um and you mentioned you touch on the uh romeo and juliet directed by wonderful erica wyman and and uh i know that that was the kind of early Genesis conversations around what became Cowboys. But just before then, I have to come clean because the, the Wi-Fi in my house is a bit struggling. And I'm doing this from my daughter Elsie's uh, bedroom at her desk while she's at school. And you know this, you've met her, and she's an enormous fan of you and your work. And, and part of the reason, I think, why I was so desperate to be seen for Cowboys, well, the reason was that Elsie uh, and I came to see I, Joan, at the Globe. And, uh, and it doesn't always happen this. I think we... It, sometimes you have very different feelings when you see something, but she and I both adored I Don't. It was one of our theatre highlights of the year, and again, as I've told you, and such a brilliant reworking of a story and so theatrical. And and then, uh, and I thought, I don't know how this happens, but I really wanted to do one, be one of them. And Elsie was very honest. She said, Dad, even if you hadn't been in it, I'd have gone to Stratford and seen the play. <laughs> so I luckily, luckily, I managed to be in it. But I mean, Interesting. Obviously, I Joe was a big play with a big cast on a big scale, and you know you've done Bitch Boxer and various other plays. But what did it feel like suddenly being at the Globe with a big play of that size? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was intimidating. Yeah, I sort of yeah, like you said, I've written, I've written one person shows. I've written sort of two handers. I've performed in my own work quite a bit, and then um, it was it, it sort of goes the order isn't as neat as it looks um so cowboys was commissioned first from the rsc that came sort of end of 2019 i think i wrote it in the pandemic and then joan came the year afterwards so they um i was doing a workshop day there and it was the first time i'd left the house in like a year and suddenly i was at the globe and then um, morgan lloyd malcolm had organized this week of writers and I was fortunate enough to be selected. And we were just sort of sat in the Globe having a chat about what it could be like to write for the Globe. And she's a brilliant woman because she really holds the door open for her once she's like stepped forward in this industry. And after Amelia, she really, I really feel like Joan's in conversation with Amelia, like that they're sort of cousins or something. And and I think, I think they're part of a trilogy and I feel like there's another one coming um, from someone else. But so yeah, so uh, so they phoned me up. I was in Asda, and we're like, "Would you would you write a play about Joan of Arc?" I was like, "Yeah, go on in." <laughs> um, but yeah, it was terrifying to write. I really had to learn on the job how to write for a big. You know, I'm an actor, so I know how to write a good scene. I know how to write a good monologue. Like I know how to make an actor excited to do a speech or to say a couple of lines or or to give them something physical to do that's challenging or exciting. I, I can do that bit, but the sort of structuring and the dramaturgy and um, I was very intimidated by it. And I got I got some help uh, from Sean Holmes, actually, um, from Simon Stevens, uh, from Morgan Lloyd Malcolm. Um, I read that Stephen Jeffries book about 20 times, the one on playwriting. Yeah, um, yeah. 
and the um, Becky Luffham at the RSC really helped to write Cowboys and I think once I'd written the sort of first two drafts of Cowboys I was like oh I can write big plays so when they said will you write Joan I was like oh I think I can do this but it was really hard and then Sarah Dickinson was the dramaturg on that she was brilliant she helped me to write Bitch Boxer so it was nice to work with her again um, and yeah I, I had to just really learn on the job but also like we had a deadline I mean they asked me to write it in September and it was going on the next summer do you know what I mean and there's something about wow. the pressure of like if I don't write this it won't get written <laughs> like that is that helps me to concentrate because it's like there are going to be some actors standing on stage and I don't want them to feel like a lemon like I want them to have something to do, <laughs> do you know I, I, you know, I, I know exactly what you mean and I think it I think a deadline is very important yeah. whatever role you I, when we make our shows and most of our shows aren't script don't start from scripts they start from an idea and we create it in the room but I always think there is a good thing about deadline, whatever position you're in, to know in three weeks' time we're doing it. I will stand yeah. up in front of some people and we will do this. There's not a point of going, oh, we're not going to do this yeah. anymore. You're going to do it. Yeah. So it's, it's very a, fast. It's a theater. really important it's thing. It's very slow. It might be yeah. Italian film, painfully slow, but in theatre, it's really but, quick. Like, if you get asked to write quickly, something, yeah. it could be on that year, you know? And and again, I no. really, you know, if an audience has left the house, I mean, COVID taught us, didn't it? Like it's a real privilege to have a live audience, and and telly's really good. So oh, if you're yeah. leaving the house and you've got a babysitter and you've got on the bus or whatever, and you've paid a ridiculous amount of money to come to the theatre, like oh, I want to make it worth your time. You know, I want it to be. I t I, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Absolutely, and and obviously, you know, around Joan, there was lots of other stuff that people were talking about the show in sometimes very negative ways, and. And I, 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 I remember, like, you know, obviously lots of people who hadn't even seen the play <laughs> were, were you know, and it was so clear they hadn't seen the play because of what they were saying is utterly yeah. ridiculous. But, and you've touched on this a little bit, but you, when, when all that is going on as well in the background, even saying negative things and commenting, whatever, and you're trying to get that done, how do you manage to keep that? the two thing or keep one at bay while you focus on I'm the I'm better work. at it now. I had again I had to learn on the job. I sort of knew I knew before the globe did that the Daily Mail would write something and people would explode on Twitter and, and I sort of tried yeah, to prep them in yeah. advance and say, listen, I think my version of Joan is non binary and I think some people will be very angry about that because <laughs> you know, because I I know you know, I read the newspapers and there's a very violent anti-trans rhetoric going on at the moment in the UK. And, and so I knew the reaction wouldn't be <laughs> jolly and warm from, from a certain demographic of people. And But I think, and they sort of heard me and did a, did a few of my suggestions, which mainly were collaborating with Gendered Intelligence and All About Trans, who are these incredible companies that can help you. Um, but it did explode. Yeah, bloody hell. I remember I was... Um, I was walking up Hampstead Heath trying to have a nice sort of Sunday with my partner and my phone just exploded with people going, oh God, I hope you're okay. And I thought, well, I, I was, what's happened? You know, and then, and then my auntie phones me, she was in France. She was like, you're on the news in France. And I was like, what? Like, we were on the news in France that in the UK, well, there were, it was just crazy. Like there was such a huge reaction and, and it, you know, it really wasn't about the play. It was about everybody's fear around gender and, and, you know, the trans debate, as we call it, and the culture wars and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it wasn't fun. I really didn't enjoy it. And I got a lot of 
um, a lot of hate from people and learned very quickly how to set security settings on my Instagram and things like that and you know, and, and to make sure you know. that I'm not contactable you know it all goes through my agent so so I've learned how to be um, how to shut myself off from it and also I, I this might be useful to share is that I did really learn um, you know what I am responsible for and what I'm not as an artist and like mm -hmm. how to hear feedback and how not to and it's the same as getting reviews in a newspaper really um you know we all sort of hate reviews and it feels lovely when you get five stars secretly even though you're like i never read reviews but you do and then it feels shit when you get two stars and you know but i really had to learn like what feedback am i gonna let in what is in service of the work what's in service of my mental health like and to be really disciplined with who i listen to and who i don't so now every project I do, I sort of sit down with a cup of tea and, and write, who am I making this for? And I have sort of five people that I'm going to really care about their opinion. And if you're not on my list, I'm going to practice being neutral. Like I hope everyone has a great time, for example, when they come and see Cowboys, but I'm really making it for five people. And and those five people are are the opinions that I'm gonna personally really invest in. And if you're not one of my five, then I'm politely neutral about your opinion. I I, I totally get where you're coming from. I remember years ago, we made our, 30 years ago, we made our first show and luckily it was a success. And I remember Simon McBurney coming to see it, which for me was a big deal. Yeah. You know, I was in awe of complicity, very in awe of Simon. And, and brilliantly, Hayley knew he was coming, but hadn't told me because I think I'd have had a meltdown <laughs> if I knew he was in the audience. So she wisely knew I couldn't handle it and didn't tell me. Anyway, he liked the show, which was a big deal for me. But he said one thing that really stayed with me. It, it's a really great show and you'll go on and do other things. He said, the only thing I would say is choose your critics yes. carefully. And it's exactly what you say. And I thought that's a really interesting. He said, you'll have everybody wanting to tell you things about what you did. The people you listen to closely choose those. Yes, I love that. I'm writing that down. I, I, it's kind of what you're saying, but I thought that's that phrase stuck yeah. with me. But now we come to the joy that is Cowboys, because what I think, having performed it for a while now and, and enjoyed every single second of it, and, and I don't want to think about it or articulate it too much. I just want to do it, and that's my job as an actress to do it and not think about why it is. You just present it, and I. I but one can't help, given the reaction, you know, every night, is, is see the kind of effect it has. And let's be honest, all theatre doesn't have the effect that maybe it's intended. <laughs> and I've been in many of those shows. Um, uh, whereas effect, which is coming back to your own words, quite visceral that tends to happen in, in Cowboys and, and the journey that an audience goes in on. Uh, uh, goes on and I think because as I said your sense of theatre and your instinct is so strong the piece for me re remains endlessly entertaining so that the political things that are going on and what they're discussing for me land much more than if this was a polemic where you were really you know it, it feels that it's not that it's coming under the radar but it's because we're having a great night it feels that it lands more. Does that connect with you yeah, as a writer? I mean, I, I definitely knew the audience I was writing for when I wrote it. I knew this. I knew the architecture. I mean, I, I was asked to write a play for The Swan at the RSC, and I knew the shape of that room, and I knew what it feels like to stand on that stage, and I knew who the audience would be. And so I was really 
specific in writing for them. You know, I, Joan, for example, could be more polemic because it needed a moment of someone jumping off the stage and ranting about gender and Twitter and turfs of Tories, you know, and, and that worked for that audience. Cause you know, there's no roof in that building and it feels like a gig and it's people standing up and you, yeah. you sort of want someone to jump off the stage and be in, in your face a bit and like running around. So, so that worked, but that wouldn't work at the RSC, you know, like it just wouldn't serve the, um, I guess it's the dramaturgy, really, the choice of it. So I knew that I wanted to write something that that would allow an opportunity for for a you know what we call a turf and a Tory for them to come and watch it and um, and be surprised that they fall in love with a protagonist who's a who's a trans person or, or or they get a little queer awakening in the back of their brain or or they or they question their own relationship with gender through the character that you play. You know, I, I said to you in rehearsals, there will be a lot of men in the audience that that relate to the sheriff and. And we'll just, you know, hopefully have a, a moment of allowing themselves to relax the kind of rules that they're stuck in around gender. I'm not suggesting that they'll all go and get such a fabulous dress and hat as you, but but maybe they'll, um, you know, maybe they'll just soften slightly and, and the world will be better for it. Um, I think I'm really conscious of like writing for, you know, my stepdad, John, works in a factory and reads the Sun newspaper. He's a, he's a white man in his uh, 60s. And I, I don't want him to feel stupid when he comes to watch a play yeah. that's about, you know, the trans experience or the queer experience or, or even the female experience. I want him to feel like he can be open to that. But also there will be a lot of young trans people who are hungry for the representation. I'm writing for them as well, you know, and like... I'm writing for kind of cool theatre makers who, you know, I, I hope are impressed by the sort of form or the dramaturgy or the style or something, but also like the people who've just come for a good night out. So I'm trying to like sort of write for everyone, I guess, in a way, but um, at the risk of diluting it. Do you know what I mean? You just got to do it confidently oh, I think I do with swagger, you... I think. I think that you do you definitely do that and you encourage us to do that and I think I think what you're talking about is what theatre should be it, it, it should be able to hold lots of different people in an audience not just one group of people but all those different people and I think cowboys and maybe also that, that by going to the world of cowboys and the, and the genre of cowboys it, it lets people in in a different way sometimes yeah, and I, I spoke to audiences who came, well, we just love, me and my wife just love Western. So that's why we came. And then they kind yeah. of opened up to something they didn't expect, you know. So I, I think that's, and obviously I, we talked a bit about movies and, and you obviously, you've steeped in watching those Western. I have to ask one question you uh, that stuck in my mind from rehearsal, which is to do with the movies while I'm, it's something in my head, is I remember for some reason we mentioned the movie Some Like It Hot and you said, I love that film, but it's problematic. Yeah. And I never got the chance because we had to carry on. Could you just elaborate just slightly on what you were? Yeah, yeah. I love that film. I love, oh, I love it so much. It's one of my favourite films. But it, you know, it is problematic. Like there are these two white men that are dressing up as women. And in terms of like representation, I think we have to be very nuanced now and delicate and aware of what we're doing. I mean, we had this conversation, yeah. didn't we, with the sheriff? In, of course we did. And like, of course we because did. Um, trans women are women 
and men uh, cross-dressing is a very different thing and right. so but because we've like been taught to laugh at men in a dress through Shakespeare through theater through film the right. impact that that can have on trans women can be really damaging because our brains can like connect those dots where they shouldn't be connected yes. so so I'm I'm wary of that in that film um and there's also some like tricky sexual politics stuff I think around Marilyn Monroe like that I haven't quite put yes my I think on. there is I think there is I think there is perhaps we should leave it there we should remember it and something but the music we... oh I want to write something about yeah. jazz I was going to be a jazz musician when I grow up and I at some point I'll get oh, back to it but I just yeah I'd love to write something about jazz one day and just that sort of dreamy like Good. the black and white oh it's just great it's great should um, Charlie, I could talk to you all day, but you haven't no. gone all day and, and neither have I. But we will be talking very soon when we're uh, in the rehearsal room and returning to it brilliantly. I just had um, one final question. And again, it, 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 it might be too big a question. You might not have a, a, a thought about it. But I just wondered if you could give one piece of advice to your teenage selves, what would it be? <laughs> um... I mean, they would not have listened to me, Paul. <laughs> Let's be honest, they really, really wouldn't. Um, I don't know, get on with it probably would be, would be the, I spent quite a lot of time moaning that people weren't letting me do things and, and actually I just needed to be proactive and get on with stuff. Um, I think, and also there's something about vulnerability. I've struggled to let my guard down as a human and as an artist. And, and I think actually, you know, humans are really hungry for it and and that it can be a, a beautiful and brave thing to let yourself be seen and to celebrate vulnerability. So I try and put little moments of that in my work now where characters can just show us a little chink in their armour and um, and they are always my favourite moments in plays. So they just make me go, oh, as an audience member, like, oh, I can see behind the mask, you know? So um, I might have said something like that to myself, but like I said, I probably wouldn't have listened. <laughs> well, I, I think our listeners will, will definitely want to listen to that because that's a really, you know, that's, it's a beautiful thing to finish on. Charlie, thank, thank you, you so much. And I'll, uh, I'll see you very soon. Yeah, see you soon. Thank you. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed this idiot podcast, please spread the word 